welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Files. I am so grateful that you're here. My name is Kim Manager, and I'm a women's leadership coach. I started this podcast because as a lifelong sufferer of imposter syndrome and a coach who sees this in 98% of the women I meet, I wanted to take this conversation to a bigger stage, so to speak. Imposter syndrome is triggered by a lot of things, but two of the primary triggers are transitions and feeling different from those around us. Women in traditionally male-dominated environments experience these triggers on an almost daily basis, so it's only natural that we would feel this way. What compounds these feelings is the sense that we are alone, the belief that if we share our feelings, we'll expose our incompetence even further. So we carry it around like a deep, dark secret. I started this podcast because I want to put a stop to this nonsense and destigmatize imposter syndrome. Because we don't talk about it, we look around and assume that everyone around us has it all figured out, that we're somehow the exception to the rule, when in reality, we're all feeling this way. And when we can own that and say it out loud, we all benefit, nobody more so than you. So thanks again for being here. If you enjoy it, please share it with others who might also benefit. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited to chat with you. I'd love to start by having you introduce yourself. Thank you, Kim. I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. My name is Deanna Galler. I am an executive coach. And um, honestly, I speak of myself as a uh, recovering scientist. I spent 28 years in my first career as a scientist and leader of scientists in the pharmaceutical industry. And I've been a coach for about 10 years. Ah, okay. So you said, I'm, I was not a scientist, but I did uh, high tech for the first half of my career and I've been doing coaching for about 10 years now too. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I'd love to start by asking you what imposter syndrome means to you and how, if at all, has it shown up in your life or your career? Okay. Um, so imposter syndrome to me is that, that feeling that you don't deserve what you have, um, that you haven't earned it, that you are not up to it, that you um, have gotten to that position of authority or privilege or knowledge um, through means that weren't right. And therefore you feel somewhat um, weak and you feel uh, afraid to make decisions or to speak your opinion or to really have the role that, that you have. Mm. Absolutely. And um, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just agreeing with you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And um, in my career, it, it's interesting because um, it showed up several years after I started working. And what I've read about, especially women's confidence in the workplace, is that it gets eroded over time. So I started, um, I was actually still a graduate student while I started working. 
and um, felt there was nothing I, if I set my mind to it, I could do anything. And then over time, as I climbed up the corporate ladder, um, there were a number of occasions that impacted how I felt about my confidence and how I felt about myself and my ability to do things or to, um, to work. And all of those conspired to make me feel like, well, maybe I am a, a fraud, an imposter in this role. I shouldn't be here. Um, so it didn't show up until sometime later in my career. When you look back, do you notice a pattern or any themes around the situations that triggered that feeling for you? Interesting question. I think, um, as I mentioned, I was in the pharmaceutical industry, which in many areas, or at least when I was there, is very much male-dominated, certainly in the science and certainly in the um, the roles that are not service roles. If you look at the majority of women in the pharmaceutical industry, first of all, in R&D, they're technicians or they're bench scientists. They're not necessarily the leaders. Um, and or they are the HR people, they are the um, finance support person, communications, things of that sort. And so it was always um, being the first one in a role. And I think that's where it started to show up, where, again, I was different than the other people who had similar roles. And so it made me question whether it was right for me to be there or whether I would be able to succeed. What you're describing is is a pretty classic symptom, so to yeah. speak, of imposter syndrome in that sense of being different. And yeah. do you feel like the, and I'm trying to think of how to frame this, but there's a natural response that we have to feeling different that's sort of hardwired because of our natural tendency to want to fit in and but was there anything about the environment and how people interacted with you that you think was a trigger um you know i don't think it was a general thing i think it was more of a matter of certain key individuals that did that and where and and i don't like to put the blame on the person here but Sometimes I think we tend to look for validation and we tend to look for other people to tell us we're doing an okay job where we actually know we are. And so, and part of the, the, um, the ethos and the norms and in the workplace, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago were that you were constantly given feedback or judged, um, measured against others. And so I think that all has an impact on how we feel because if you slip a little bit, then you might think you you would be afraid to slip a lot, if you will. Mm-hmm. So did you, 
actively use any strategies or are you are you aware of anything that you did during those times to help manage these feelings? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the main thing that I did is I found a group of other supportive women or it found me. And we, um, in fact, I had a uh, distance cocktail di- uh, hour with them last night. So we've been really good friends for well over 20 years. And these were a lot of other women who were also on the rise in their careers. And uh, it was helpful to have someone else to talk to and to listen to. And first of all, know we were not alone and share those experiences and the, the day-to-day strategies on how to cope with things, um, as well as creating a network that we could rely on for the work. And that was really helpful because other people didn't have that kind of network. So um, we had a, an opportunity to help each other in our work and in our careers and in keeping our sanity and our self-worth. That, that was critically important. So finding that peer group is really, uh, I think, immeasurably valuable. You mentioned that that group found you. Do you have any tips for women who may not have an obvious group to turn yeah. to? That's a great question. So in this case, we had a senior leader who was a woman who... Uh, knew she was one of the very few who created an organization um, within our workplace for women. And so uh, she looked for women who were on the rise, who were smart, who were friendly, et cetera. And she put us together and gave us a special um, training program with a fabulous coach. And I think that was the start. It wasn't how it actually succeeded. And it succeeded as a group through adversity. One of our members um, got divorced. And we all pull ranks to help her, to help her through all of this. And and I won't go into the details, obviously, but um, that adversity which wasn't work-related, just made us connect better. So that was what happened in my situation. Um, I'm also a member of um, an organization for women called the Healthcare Business Women's Association. Hmm. And I actually run a group for executive women. I, I have run, actually, I'm taking a break this year where we put together women who are in the senior levels because that's where it gets harder to meet peers or to have peers even in some companies. And uh, we put this group together from women from different companies so that they would create their own circle of advisors, um, circle of trusted friends. And we've been running this for um, seven or eight years now. And put together women who meet once a month and do this kind of thing, talk to each other, 
connect, understand what's going on in their lives and their work, and provide support. And these are managed through uh, with a coach at each one so that the conversation is um, uh, facilitated, especially in the early days when it's harder to connect. And, and some of these groups, actually the first circle that I started, um, we still meet. Wow. I, I love that you gave examples of both internal and external yeah. groups because not everybody will necessarily have the internal group available, but there are definitely some really great external groups out there. And, and I would look at women's organizations, women's uh, professional organizations for this kind of thing as well. Absolutely. So I'd love to shift gears now and talk a little bit more about your work with confidence. Mm-hmm. What, what do you see out there? Great question. <laughs> so the reason I got interested in confidence is because um, so many of my clients voiced that as one of their issues. They were uh, fearful of both men and women, not just women fearful of speaking up, um, fearful of, uh, of getting into trouble for doing their work or to step up and, uh, and, and maybe take on a, a higher role or more um, challenging position in their companies. And um, so I thought there must be something to this. And um, People I spoke with and, and I shared that I was interested in this topic said, wow, that's such an important topic. So I started looking at the literature. I read about 10 books or more and articles and things of that sort. And I, at, at that time, um, I, I had to stop because I, I realized one of the things that I was doing was looking for perfection and not trusting myself to know enough. Hmm after reading all of this. So I started working on my own self-confidence about this and um, created a model for where confidence comes from or lack of confidence comes from and how you can impact that. And, And it's journey. There's no magic bullet. There's no magic wand that I have that I can wave at someone and say, now you're confident. But I can ask them to think about how they're approaching things or their perspective from any of these three areas. Um, And again, my definition of worthiness, because I couldn't find one that was working for me in the dictionary, is that um, it isn't just the, well, that confidence is the mindset or belief that you have the capacity to achieve. And most important, and that you're worthy of that success. Mm. That's such a powerful frame for that, right? Because that worthy piece, I think, is is absolutely critical. And one of the things that I read in the books, many were looking at confidence from the perspective of, if you fake it, you'll become it. And that, I think, is where imposter syndrome also shows up, because if you fake it enough, but don't believe it, 
you know, that you feel like an imposter. Exactly. So can you say more about the connection between self-worth and confidence and what, how you help with that piece? Sure. So um, I look at sort of three areas. One, um, the limiting beliefs that you might have. So how you see the world. So what you see the rules are for behavior or for um, what will happen in the world. So if you make the rule, if you assume there is a rule or a belief that women can't be X, you're never going to try that, right? Mm. You create a rule that I can't be. And so first we work on looking at limiting beliefs and trying to understand what those might be. One of my favorites uh, for limiting beliefs to use as an example was that at the turn of the 20th century, there was a belief widespread that women should not exercise beyond very, very minimal levels because it would hurt their delicate nature. Hmm. Wow. How do you think that falls on Serena Williams? <laughs> right. Right? Right. But it was a belief around the world. And there was no evidence for it, but it was a belief. So it created the rules that women couldn't compete in the Olympics or, you know, all kinds of things. So that's one. So how you see the world is one. Another one is how you want the world to see you or how you want to be seen. And there comes a lot about the feedback and perfectionism and that ideal image that might have been um, something that you created as a teenager and you're still measuring yourself against. So making comparisons against others, regardless of whether they're valid or not, tends to, again, take away from how we feel our worthiness, our abilities, our uh, capabilities. And when we take feedback in and personalize it and accept it regardless of the spirit that it's given, in which it's given, um, that and not filter it, that can also take away from our feeling, our sense of confidence. Um, so if we don't filter, if we don't choose the feedback that we take in, or uh, feedback in which can be as simple as looking at magazines and the images of women in those mm -hmm. magazines. And we're comparing ourselves against those. That's a great point. And then the last is once we've internalized all of that, all of that feedback, all of the mistakes or you know things that, that happen to us in our life, we tend to create this little voice inside that actually is there to protect us but also stops us from doing all kinds of things. The, the, the little voice that says, can't do that, you're going to fail. And so working to remove that little voice, thank it for, thank you for protecting us, but um, really letting go of that voice is the last and, and sometimes the most difficult thing to work on to build confidence. 
And I, I run a four-part workshop on this. And do you find, because you mentioned it's not just women, right? There, I've experienced right. that as well, that it's, it's also men. Do you, if we look at this through other lenses besides gender, are there other trends that you see among the people that come to you for this? Are there, are there other kinds of themes that show up? Yeah, that's a great question. Usually it's people who've, um, so both men and women, it's people who've had some negative feedback based on somebody else's ideal image. Um, they might have, um, they might be very good at what they're doing, but they're somehow different than the person that hired them expected them to be. And so they keep on hitting their head against the wall and um, don't know why and don't trust their instincts about how to do things. Um, so it, it, that comparisons part or perfectionism, so comparing to their own ideal uh, tends to cause that as well. Yeah, I think I love that you look at this at a deeper level and that you mentioned the fake it till you become it uh, as really contributing to imposter syndrome more so than overcoming it. Because these are such deep rooted messages that we have internalized that, you know, continue to surround us in invisible ways Uh to be able to shine a spotlight on that and spend some time really thinking is so powerful because we just don't do a lot of that in our everyday lives. And we have to know first that it is a limiting belief that can be challenged, right? I think so, yeah. so often we just accept that fact, what we tell ourselves. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and all those assumptions that we make about things which are, uh, probably based on some valid experience, some, some real experience, but it may not be valid now. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Is there one thing that you would re recommend to anyone listening who may be experiencing what we're describing and looking for some action step that they can take some starting point or something that you think would be helpful? Yeah. I think there's um, there's one thing I've been reading a lot about how the mind works lately. And um, in general, we have two, you know, the, the reptile brain, if you will. Um, the fast mind that is always scanning for threats and looking to associate what we're seeing with something that happened in the past. And that that tends to happen in, in millisecond or nanosecond time. But it isn't always right. The slow mind that uses uh, reason, that really looks at what the real possibility is and um, sits in the prefrontal cortex, that, um, that mind tends to take more energy from us. And if we're scared or if we're tired, we tend to not engage it. 
So I think if I could recommend anything to anyone would be to take that moment when they have that, that instant of fear about work or about anything else or uh, that moment where they don't feel confident to take a moment, take a breath and start trying to think about it rationally. What evidence do I have of this? How likely is this to happen? And then quite frankly ask, what's the worst that could happen if I did this? Most of the time the answer is, yeah, no big deal. Mm. And actually the gain is much greater. So, So trying to engage that rational mind and trying to slow down, take a pause, take a breath in order to go forward is really critical. I love that. And I have certainly found that to be the case myself too, because my own imposter syndrome coupled with my own natural anxiety that once mm-hmm. it's, once it starts, it, it's like a speeding train. <laughs> That's really- oh yeah, absolutely. It really hijacks, you know, everything. Yeah. I love that. And I think that engaging your rational mind piece is such a powerful way to yeah. just kind of get back into the driver's seat again. Yeah. Um, and so thank you for that. So as we're wrapping up today, I'd love to ask you just a couple more questions. What motivated sure. you to want to be here today? And what are you hoping people will take away from this? Well, um, I was so intrigued by um, you creating a podcast on the topic of imposter syndrome that um, I wanted to participate. And, um, and like I said, I have found this to be a, a passion for me to try and help, especially women, um, become more confident in their, in their own abilities and, and opportunities. I have to tell you that uh, when I wrote, read your, your topic, I was taken back to a friend who was about to graduate with a PhD from Harvard. And that's the first time I heard the term imposter syndrome. And she felt like she was an imposter in what she was doing. Now, this is a person who's now in a named chair at another Ivy League university. <laughs> but this is what she told me. So I know this is so prevalent, so um, widespread that it, wouldn't we get so much more if we engage the minds and the innovate, the creativity, the ability to innovate of all of these people? And if they weren't afraid to contribute. Mm. So that's what I thought would be a wonderful um, result of this interview. Thank you so much. You're absolutely right. I think about that too, of how much as a society, we're missing out on people's full potential because they're just, they're experiencing such self-doubt. So thank you for being here and for sharing your perspective with us. Thanks again for listening today. If you're struggling with imposter syndrome and you'd like additional support, check out the show notes for more resources or contact me directly. I would love to help you. 
And if you'd like to tell your story, I would love to interview you. You will find my contact info in the show notes. So reach out anytime. Thanks again.